Let us pray to the Lord, Lord have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and thine all holy and good and life-giving spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is in our midst. Amen. Thank you. Okay, <clears throat> we'll go ahead and pass these books around. Now we have enough for everyone today. I don't know, this is weird. I think people are loitering downstairs. Yeah, they're probably eating, hanging out. Whoever gets the book. <laughs> if it's helpful, you don't have to follow along the book if you don't want to. Um, you guys doing okay this week? Good, yeah? Doing hot. Yeah, hot? Is that, that means really, oh, your t- temperature. Yeah, I know, me too, me too. Kind of, should we drop the temperature in here? I just run hot. Oh, okay. My, my, it's, it's the opposite of my mom, but my mom is always cold in here, and I'm always warm in here. Oh, so. uh, okay. Well, you have some good layers on, too, though. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's so. Yeah. It's, I don't know what fabric it is. I don't know anything <laughs> about Well, I can't. I don't know. You, if I get it, if I think I've gotten it right, then then one person will say, "Can we turn up the heat a little bit, or can we drop it a little bit?" So, it's gonna be really fun now that we have AC because everyone's gonna want to. Well, not everyone, but people will want to weigh in. Can we cool it off a little bit in here? I know we have AC now. Don't you for me. I will. No, I think we're gonna try to keep it at like. Uh, like 68 yeah. or so, you know. That's probably good. So. No, but it gets cooler in here. I just slightly open Yeah. That's another one of those little unspoken battles, I think, that takes place during different times of the year. The windows open and close throughout the services. One person will open it and then go to their spot. Oh, they're feeling good. And then another person will go, oh, that's a little cold. And <laughs> close it. So, anyway. Well, let's, let's go ahead and jump into our, um, our session topic today. Today we're going to be talking about, if we have time, the teaching of Christ and then saving humility. So let's start with chapter 8. What page is it? 127? Okay. The teachings of Christ. Now, we're not going to be able to give a comprehensive analysis of all of the teachings of Christ today. Sorry about that. There are a lot of good books out there, including ones written by uh, Metropolitan Hilarion Alfeyev, who's a prolific writer. He's written a series of five volumes on the Orthodox faith that are really good, and we try to keep them down in the, in the bookstore. If you're looking for something that's like an overview of orthodoxy, but, but more substantive than most of the, you know, 150-page books that you can find. Or a lot of them that are like, I call them bridge books. There are a lot of books published around, um, out of America that are people who have converted and they're sharing their 
story or doing a lot of compare and contrast. And he does a little bit of that, but it's mostly a five-volume treatment on what the church is, what she believes, and what she does. It's, re- it's really well written. Um, he has written in Russian originally. It's been translated into English, and I can send those to you. They're, they're called, with a kind of lack of creativity, but also um, a simplicity that we can appreciate, um, the Orthodox faith. Different one. That one is another Orthodox faith by Father Thomas Hopko. And that's all available online. And that's pretty good. It's fairly comprehensive, but it's not as comprehensive as um, the Metropolitan Hilarion one. Um, oh, someone's asking about Zoom. Okay. Let's see, that, see what I can do. Here. Sign in. Got you. Hey guys, sorry. We we got started a little behind schedule because we had our annual financial presentation at the church. But we just got started, and I've just kind of been chatting about some different things, including some books on orthodoxy that are pretty good. So. Um, that I was talking about a five-volume set of books by Metropolitan Hilarion Alfeyev called The Orthodox Faith. And uh, we carry them in the bookstore. So if anyone's interested, you can check them out. Let me share my screen with you guys here. Um, screen broadcast. All I see is you holding a candle. It's coming. That was me on Pascha doing Come Receive the Light. Oh, no, I don't want my email. Can you see the faith up on the screen? Yeah. Okay, good. So there you go. All right, so the teachings of Christ is the topic for today. And, oh, Metropolitan Hilarion has also been working on a multi-volume set on the teachings of Christ, the life and teachings of Christ. And just the first volume was something like six or eight hundred pages. And uh, one of the publishers, who, who I know, Asked him how he had the time. He's, the, he's a bishop in Russia, and he's the head of, um, I think, external communications for the, the Russian Orthodox Church. And um, the <clears throat> publisher was asking him, how did you find time to write this huge book? And it's only volume one of, I think, four. And uh, there was some event that was going on, and he ended up not going, and he said... I ended up not going to this event 
So I had a week on my hands. And he said, he's this really like simple, dry kind of personality. I had a week on my hands. And then he gave a little smile. So he's just a very, you know, accomplished and intelligent, but humble man, metropolitan hilarion. So um, if you're interested in a comprehensive teaching, intro even, you know, and study of the life and teaching of Christ, um, he's, he's working on, I think he has three volumes published. One is on the Gospels, I think. One is on particular, in general, one is on the parables. Another one might be on the miracles of Christ. But um, we'll see what we can do today. The teachings of Christ, to live the life that Christ came to give us, we must be willing to follow his commandments, which is the way of suffering love. It's kind of a good connection with today's homily. Throughout his ministry, Jesus was called rabbi, which means teacher. Although Jesus gained fame as a miracle worker, he was especially known for his teachings. Indeed, today, virtually all of the world's religions recognize Jesus Christ as a great religious teacher. Even atheists admire his ethical teachings. It's almost hard to, ex- to, to escape the teaching of Jesus in the world today. People will quote him. I mean, the, 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 the ethical and moral teaching of Jesus has become part of the universal parlance, you could say. Just the language we use in speaking about what's right and wrong. Yet most of the people who find Jesus to be such a, quote, enlightened teacher have never actually bothered to study his teachings. They merely summarize them in terms of the golden, golden rule or love thy neighbor, sayings which they then reinterpret in light of their own beliefs. I have a funny story to tell you. It's kind of cute. I don't know if I'll tell it quite right, but that's okay because you don't know the original. Um, a, a priest who was Father Thomas Hopko, who was a, a great teacher and well-known um, priest and kind of theologian, but just a really good educator in his lifetime of blessed memory. He went to go give a talk at a church once. And above their iconosauces, they had kind of an archway that says, um, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And that was it, that you love one another. And he saw it, and he got a little smile on his face. And he goes to the priest, come over here. That, that a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. He goes, that's not right. The priest goes, what? what? He goes, no, that's not right. This isn't what it says. And he goes, well, I wasn't here when it was put on the wall. He starts kind of like he wasn't trying, try, he, he was trying to kind of defend himself. I don't know. What is he saying? What do you mean? And he goes, what does the verse actually say? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. But that's not the end of the sentence. How does the sentence end? Do you guys know? Even as I have loved you. And that makes all the difference. Otherwise, love can be whatever you want it to be. I always like to remind people that 
Like that bumper sticker that goes, that's going around, or that has been, love is love. That's not true. Love is not self-defining. Um, as I mentioned today in the teaching of the scripture, 1 John, read 1 John. God is love. We can never, we would actually never say, unless we're quoting St. Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 13, love is, and he gives some characteristics of what love is like. But that's because we can't understand love in its fullness. Because love is not a concept or an idea or a series of ethical precepts or moral precepts that you just do and then therefore you're loving. Love is nothing in and of itself because God is love. And we would never flip it around and say love is God. We would always say, because love isn't greater than God. Love is a way of trying to express the plenitude of the selflessness and the goodness goodness and the, the perfection of the communion held in the persons of the Trinity. A complete selflessness. But people, will, people would, would often like to say, oh, I, I love the teaching of Jesus. Like, love one another. But even as I have loved you. That's the tagline that needs to be there for us to actually begin to take what he was actually saying seriously. But this idea, love thy neighbor, love one another, it creates a kind of a non-threatening, low-calorie, low-cal, gentle Jesus meek and mild approach that has become so popular in our day. And, of course, in our, in, in, in our Western culture, in our post-enlightenment especially culture, um, you have, of course, you have the right and the freedom to create Jesus in your own image and to interpret his teachings in your own way. And that's why we have what I refer to as the chaos of denominationalism. A bunch of people who really, now I always want to say, they genuine, most people genuinely believe that they're doing the right thing. So we can't go in there and automatically assume that they're just being absolutely, totally selfish and manipulating and twisting the teachings of Jesus just because, just because they want to. Usually it's because they believe that there's something good in what they're doing. And usually they believe in some way it's authentic, but maybe they've been misled. And that's a part of the, the philosophical, you could say, undergirding of our, of our Western identity that allows us to sunder ourselves from that which has come before and to pretend like we have, we have an identity without acknowledging the, the source of life. Like, as if, as if my identity is not dependent on whether or not my mom brought me into the world, for example. You know, we don't have life apart from being given it. And we forget that, and therefore we don't respect in our attempt to, to find what is true and to interpret teachings. We don't actually seek sources of authority. We just seek what, what feels best. And it's easy then to make this low-cal version of Jesus that I call it creating, creating Jesus in our own image rather than conforming, being conformed to his image.
And the, the broader term, terminology for it, I gave a really rousing homily on it about a year ago, is moralistic therapeutic deism. You guys ever heard of that term? Moral, moralistic therapeutic deism, which basically means it's, it's summarized by that saying, I'm a pretty good person, therefore I'm going to go to heaven. And you turn God into a cosmic vending machine of sorts. God is there when I need him, or it, or them, or whatever, whatever God you would be appealing to. But a lot of Christians even are moralistic therapeutic deists. They treat God in this way. God loves me and accepts, accepts me as I, as I am, and therefore he's going to let me into heaven um, because I'm a pretty good person. Um, and the only time I really need him is if I'm in crisis. Uh, that's not the version of Christianity that we subscribe to in orthodoxy. I hope you've noticed that so far. I'm going to shut this window over here. I'm sorry. I always tell people we really like each other here. So we talk and laugh and eat, especially when it's the last day. Do you guys wish you were downstairs eating meat still? I'll try to give you spiritual, spiritual meat. Okay? But, and, and the goal, again, the goal of, of talking about things like moralistic, therapeutic deism is not to, to take a, some kind of high ground personally and say, oh, they're just moralistic, therapeutic deists and really impress your friends or better impress yourself, which is a lot of times what we're out to do when we say things like that, as if I know better. And if I could summarize our approach to our life in Christ and our relationship with God, it would be, I know nothing and he knows everything. That's not to say that I can't have some knowledge, but any knowledge that I have that is true and is real is his anyway. It's from Christ. It's of him. And so that's the kind of humility with which we try to approach any understanding. And that's why we try not to lean on our, we try not to lean on our own understanding. Um, and if you start reading the scripture, especially of those who are exploring orthodoxy. Um, reading orthodoxy with a broader perspective and seeing the continuous themes and also hearing the way that the, the teaching is of, of the church is informing our approach to Scripture, you start finding it. It's this kind of approach of humility and love is pervasive in the Holy Scriptures. So... You can, uh, you can save that one for a game night or something, you know, moralistic therapeutic deism with, with your friends. Um, the religious establishment perceived them... Okay, sorry. I went ahead too far. In his own day, Jesus' teachings were not always well-received. Um, how do we know that Jesus' teachings were not well-received? They were trying to kill him. Yeah, come on, let's like state the obvious. Yeah, if they just thought he was a great ethicist and moral teacher, then they probably would not have tried to kill him for it. 
Um, the religious establishment perceived them precisely as a threat to its beliefs and way of life. And that's because love is always a threat to the, to the proud. And humility, too. Humility is incomprehensible. And the humility of God, I would say. Saint Isaac the Syrian said, humility is the raiment of the Godhead. Um, selflessness. And when people are, that's one of the paradoxes and ironies of the, of the human endeavor, is we're trying to figure out, who am I? But you, so you can't escape the reality of self-reference in a journey to discover who you are until you discover that you are existentially uh, relational. And at the root of your identity is your relationship with God. So what, what happens is you get this rocket boost where you realize that, that I am nothing kind of approach. That's not the same as hating yourself. It's not self-deprecation, but it's like, wow, you know, I, there's a very, I'm like a speck of dust in the grand scheme of things. How am I here? How do I have meaning and purpose? It's because God has given you life. And so I like to say that God-realization is self-realization. A lot of times we're on this journey of supposed self-realization. And again, in orthodoxy and in, just in Christianity, I mean, I, I think orthodoxy just is Christianity. But you would say, we, we would say that um, we find who we are as those who are in relation to God but not even just a relational identity, um, an ontological, essential um, identity we were created to be in to be absolutely united with him, which is an amazing thing to, to try to consider. Um, but, um, but you also hear things like, the kingdom of God is within you. Why? Not just because you and I are, are so so special that we can become living temples and holy in and of ourselves, but because God created, with, created us with that seed. St. Justin Martyr calls it the seed of God, the seed of God within us. In the prayers before communion, it's referred to as the, there are two different translations, but I love them both, the inalienable or the indelible image of God within us that makes us who we are. So when we discover who we are, we're not, we're not actually finding ourselves. Kind of the, I think, therefore I am, the, you know, enlightenment, Western view, self-made approach. But we're finding that we are who we are because God planted that seed there. And that's the only reason my life has any meaning or purpose or value because of him. And rather than that turning me into being nothing, because, oh, well, it's, it's, it's all God anyway. No, it's actually, it's an amazing realization that it, it, it's all God. All that is real and true and good and lovely and perfect and right that we were created for is, is there because of God. And we can be a part of that. We can accept that reality. I use the language of submission in a way. I'll say we'll submit ourselves to that or subject ourselves to the reality 
that there is no life apart from him. And that, that whole mentality changes the way you approach dialoguing about faith and about religion and about scripture. There's a saying, this is not all in the book, sorry. There's a, there's a quote from the saying of sayings of the desert fathers, and I forgot where it is. I might be in the sayings of, of St. Anthony, but they were talking about a scripture passage. And they said, do you know what this passage means? There were some desert hermits sitting around having a little spiritual talk. And the, the elder was there. Do you know what this means? And the first one gave his take. And the elder said, no. The next one, he gave his interpretation. Nope, that's not the meaning either. The next one, nope. They finally got to the last one and he said, I don't know. And the elder said, yes, that's the right interpretation. <laughs> or that's the right approach at least. But you were right. So there's, all, there's, there's this approach to where we don't have to try to grasp on and grab a hold and, and pretend, you know, feign to understand ev everything. To grab a hold of Jesus, you know, like as if he's our possession. Our goal is, our desire is to be possessed by him. So, so his teachings were controversial. Not only because he himself claimed to be God, which we've talked about, but also because he told men that there, were, there was only one thing in life worth having, the kingdom of God, and that it would cost a man all that he had in order to acquire it. From Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. When he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. And they knew when he was giving teachings like that, he was saying, you can't, you basically can't have God and the worldly glory that you're looking for. You can't be everything and nothing simultaneously as a person. God has to be everything. And what does that mean for you? You have to divest yourself of everything that you consider to be valuable. And that comes as an incredible threat to the human condition. The people of Jesus' time, not unlike people of our own day, did not want to hear this. That's kind of why I say repeatedly and jokingly this approach of, selflessness and spiritual struggle and asceticism. It's a hard sell. It's not very marketable. To make Jesus marketable, you kind of have to change his teachings around a little bit. Make him more sensational. They were not interested in giving up their lives in order to acquire that life which has no end. They simply wanted a set of rules to follow that would guarantee them a happy, peaceful life. And it goes back to this pervasive mentality that a lot of us have. What's the least that I have to do? What's the least that I have to do in order to ensure my salvation? What's the minimum I have to do in order to get into heaven? And, you know, I keep repeating myself by saying, that's like telling your wife or your spouse, what's the least I have to do in order to stay in a relationship with you? For you to know that, like, I'm, I'm here and I love you. You're not going to divorce me, but 
what's, what's the least to, to just stay on that edge of the threshold? That has nothing to do with love. And especially if you understand that the Christian calling is to, I mean, is to enter into a life of love with God. You wouldn't say, what's the, what's the least amount of love I have to give you? You can't do that. Love is not quantifiable to begin with. But how can I love and continuously love more forever and under the ages? And he says, yeah, you, you basically, in a way, you detach yourself from everything that you, that you would think is valuable, that has value in and of itself, and you go after God. And they knew that. He was basically saying you cannot have your cake and eat it too. And they were like, yeah. Yeah, we can. At least we've convinced people that we can. They can't, but we can. You know, Pharisees. So the ethical teachings of the Orthodox Church, faithfully based upon the teaching of our Lord, are concerned with one thing only, to lead man to the kingdom of heaven. She knows that there's only one path to heaven, keep the commandments of Christ. And yet the commandments of Christ are not just another set of rules to follow. Again, another, what's the least I have to do? A Christian replacement for the Old Testament law. On the contrary, there are, there, they are a new way of life, a new way of experiencing one's relationship with God, with others, and with the whole creation. They have as their aim neither the ethical improvement of man's behavior or the moral justification of his actions, but the transformation of man's life into the likeness of God, which we liken to being, being transfigured. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave his disciples the commandment which most clearly expresses the purpose for man's existence and the purpose for Christ's work on earth. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Thus, we're commanded to attain the state of perfect God-likeness. Anything less than this is sin and failure. That's missing the mark. Like I mentioned today, we have, a, we have something within us that, that is drawing us to, toward more. What is it? And it's that calling to perfection of union with God. Now that perfection is something, if God is perfect and God is without beginning and without end, then our movement into perfection with God is a continuous one. So again, there's no marker along the way where someone can say, ah, you've achieved perfection now. Sienna. But what, what can happen, though, like in the lives of the saints? They are not God. Only God is. But as they become more God-like, they become sharers in the perfection of God. And so there's a kind of a, there is a, a perfection in Christ that begins to take place, that becomes so obvious in their purity and in their humility, humility and love. And then not to mention in the, the different miracles and things that are associated with their lives, but that's not all that there is. Most of them would care less about the miracles. And if... Something miraculous, one of the teachings in the church about miracles is if, if a miracle happens to you, then don't even talk about it. Don't go around telling people about it. Just thank God 
that it happened. Many saints who were wonder workers and miracle workers would have these encounters with people where they healed them of an illness or whatever it may be, and they would say over and over again, don't tell anyone about this until I die. Because they didn't want people to deify them, to aggrandize them. They wanted to, they wanted to follow, the, follow the St. John of Baptist model. St. John the Baptist, I must decrease and he must increase. This is true Christian joy. Um, where did, okay, where did I stop? Oh, as the fall enslaved mankind to a way of life contrary to its true nature. So the coming of Christ once again opened the gates of paradise and made it possible for a man to live as he was originally intended to live. To follow Christ, therefore, is to live, or at least try to live, the new life which he came to give to mankind. This is not a matter of earning merits or trying to make up for past sins, but of entering into a new way of living in the image of God. If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. There are two aspects of Jesus' teaching that we must understand if we're faithfully to faithfully keep his commandments. First, following the commandments of Christ means that one must go beyond the letter of the law. Jesus insisted that he had not come to destroy the law of Moses, but to fulfill it. Reminds me of that teaching of St. Augustine. You've probably heard it. Love and do whatever you want. You ever heard that? If you're seeking to love, then you can do whatever you want. You won't, be, you won't be worried about breaking the rules or offending or whatever because you'll be so consumed with love that all you will want to do is love. Therefore, you can do whatever you want. It's a kind of little, another little paradoxical saying. Jesus insisted that he had not come to destroy the law but to fulfill it. And in fulfilling the law, Jesus penetrated into the inner spirit of the law. And he expects us to do the same. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not enough for us to merely follow some external rules or to just try to figure out what's the, what's the least I have to do. Jesus gave several example, examples of going beyond the letter of the law. We have from Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, which is a curse, shall be in danger of counsel, of the, the counsel. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. And in the, in the, the New Covenant understanding, the gift is, is yourself, actually. And so one of, one of the things that, would, that should preclude us from 
feigning, again, worthiness to approach the holy mysteries, to receive holy communion, is, is if we are at odds with another person and we need to go reconcile with them. That would be a time for us to, unless they're right there and you can run over and reconcile, they're in the same building and say, well, forgive me before I go take communion, you know, or receive communion. Can we go together? Um, you would actually leave your gift, your intention, and go and reconcile before returning to the chalice. So here Jesus internalizes the commandment against murder and shows that hatred, bitterness, and unjust anger are also grave sins. Listen, to, when you start acting judgmentally toward others and speaking poorly of others as if they can't do anything right, there's a, there's a manner in which you're saying life would be better without them. And we need to ask ourselves, am I ever speaking in that way as if to give any indication that I think life would be better without you or you? I never felt that way about you guys, by the way. But... That's the same, in a way, the same as saying, I wish they had never been born. I wish they weren't alive. Maybe the world would be better off without them if they were to die. I might consider it kind of sad because everyone wants to live. And so I'm sympathetic on that level. I want to live too. But that's the teaching that Christ is giving us here. Um, He's calling us to a higher, a higher standard, more than just a moral standard. Does that make sense? But it really means a change of mind. And um, in uh, Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. St. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your... The word there is noose, actually. <laughs> so it doesn't just mean your thought process, but your, your faculty of connection with God being renewed by transforming that, reconnecting with God. And you cannot say, you cannot say, I love God and hate your brother. Those two are mutually exclusive. I almost said it today, but there's so many, I was, so many thoughts during the homily today, and one of the things that I didn't say that I was thinking about is I came to this conclusion that kind of like to say, like St. Isaac said, to see, if you see your neighbor, you've seen God. I think, I think there's also a way of, if, if, if we're willing to be humble enough to see it, to blame another person is also to blame God. Because if everything that we encounter is by God's providence, then we learn to, to thank him for every trial. Read James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. And why? One of my favorite contemporary Orthodox elders is a Romanian elder who was thrown into a concentration camp um, for being a priest. And someone asked him, 
they were, they were systematically tortured. And the goal was, they called it re-education. The goal was to get them to deny their faith. And that's always been the goal of anyone who has persecuted Christians. Not to annihilate Christianity, because you could go around and blow things up and kill people. It doesn't mean you've actually won. Because the battlefield of the, of the will is where, the, where it all takes place. And there's no satisfa- satisfaction until they agree with me. Until I've, I don't have authority over you until I have authority over your mind and over your will. So they, were, they put them in concentration camps and solitary confinement. And they, they beat them. And they made fun of them, threatened them. One of, the, one of the ones said it was, he said, I would, rather, I, would, I would rather be beaten than, it, than watch someone. I had to, we had to watch other people be tortured. He said that was the, the hardest. But this late elder, Father Roman Braga, I don't know if someone was listening to a homily that I gave or something. I have like, you know, nine listeners to our podcast for our homilies, but someone's listening out there and someone sent me a picture of this priest and I've, I've referred to him several times over the years. But anyway, they sent me a picture. I need to get it framed of Father Roman. But someone asked him, how did you deal with con- continually being beat and tortured as a Christian? How, do you, you know, how did you approach that? And he said, the more that they tortured us, the more we forgave them. We just forgave them more and more and more. And really, that's the, that's the approach that, that Christ is trying to get us to. That, was, that man is a very Christ-like. And we hear our Lord Jesus saying that on the cross, too when they're crucifying him. Forgive them. We can't justify ourselves before God saying, well, I never killed anyone. I never killed anyone. Um, Maybe you did and you don't even know it. Who knows? I mean... I don't know. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe some rude thing you said sent someone off. You flipped someone off in the car. A guy, he went home, beat his son and his son. Dis- I mean, you never know. Our sin makes ripples, but this, the ripples of goodness um, can't outflank the ripples of sin in the world. That's, that's something that... Keep going on these little tangents, but um, I think you understand why. So Jesus goes on to do the same with the commandment against adultery. He teaches us that it's not only the physical act of adultery which is a sin, but the desire itself. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. God sees into the depths of our being and knows the sinful attitudes and dispositions that dwell there. 
If we are to follow Christ, we must first deal first and foremost with these attitudes and dispositions. In addition, to follow the commandment, the commandments of Christ is to walk the narrow path of self-denial. There is no way that we can live the life that Christ came to give us if we're living in a self-centered way. One of my friends, who's um, now is a bishop, but he was an abbot of a monastery, um, uses this little phrase all the time. It's a, good, it's a good guideline for any of us to use at any moment. good one to have ingrained in your mind. Um, another one that he would use all the time is mercilessly persecute hypocrisy within yourself. Not in your neighbor, within yourself. But it's a path of self-denial. So there's no way that we can live the life that Christ came to give us if we're living in a self-centered way. And that's why moralism doesn't work because our goal is not to become better than other people in orthodoxy. Our Lord made it very clear that those who wish to follow him must sacrifice everything in order to enter into his blessings. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gains the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words Of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Jesus commanded that any obstacle which stands between us and the kingdom of heaven must be removed. And if thy right eye offend thee, he says, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it, off, cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. One of the practical applications of this that I, that I use in a kind of counsel, spiritual counsel with people is when they're struggling with certain sins, I will tell them, and it's not so. It's not simple. It's not. It's not simple. I just as easy as just just doing something, and your problems will go away. So I want you to know this. Like when I when I make a point about the spiritual life or overcoming our sins and passions, it's not just a you know a plus b equals c kind of equation. Um, but that being said. A lot of times I'll, I'll tell people that if they're struggling with a particular sin, then, don't, then do not put your pla- yourself in a place where you can do that sin. If it's a sin that you do when you're alone, then step out in the light. If it's on your phone, it could be, could be sp- social media. It could be just 
getting enraged on social media. Cut off your right hand, which means delete your social media accounts. If it's ruining your life and dominating your consciousness, cut off your right hand. If it's pornography, get rid of the cell phone and do not use a, a laptop or a computer when other people are not around. Do not access the internet in private. Whatever it may be. Um, that's, it's, it can be done, but it's, it's hard. And that's, that's part of the, what is frustrating about the teaching of Jesus. Is he says it can be done, but you will have to change. And he likens that change to dying to yourself. Because that self that I've, that I've always known, that one that gets what he wants, or, or I don't get everything I want, okay? But a little bit. But a little bit of what I want is far more than I need. And it's enough for me to be full of myself and uh, too comfortable. And the Lord comes and challenges that whole mentality, and it's, um, it's frustrating, you know? It's a, but the truth is, um, is revealing. It's a bright, beautiful light, but it's also a purifying fire. So this does not mean that we should physically maim ourselves. Okay, of course. But that we must be willing to give up anything which leads to sin. Even those things which may be perfectly good in and of themselves. In other words, we may have to make some sacrifices for the sake of our spiritual well-being. There are no, sh no shortcuts to holiness. So one of the reasons why we, we, why we emphasize fasting, self-deprivation and fasting. Food is good, good for us. It's a necessity. It's a gift from God for our, for our nourishment because God loves us and it's enjoyable. But we've turned it into an end in and of itself. We have become food addicts. We love our preferences. We love the quality of the food and the flavors. And now we eat things that are not even food. I was listening to one nutritionist and he goes, let's even just go back to the definition of what food is. Because a lot of the stuff we're putting in our body is actually not even food. What are we doing to ourselves? Why are we doing it? Because FDA says it's okay? Basically, they're saying it's not going to kill you immediately. But we need to correct some of that. I'm not giving a sales pitch for nutrition, you know, a diet or something like that. But our relationship with the world, the world that God has given us needs to change as well. And so the church gives us practical ways like, like abstaining from, from rich and fatty foods for a time. You could say, you could call it kind of going back to Eden, you know, the way we fast. Ideally, we would be eating more simple foods in their, you know, original form. And thanking God, learning to thank God for that. I saw, I don't want to go too far on a health, like a health, you know, nutrition tangent here, but, but I saw something that was really profound. There was a guy who was struggling with health issues and he did a, a guided fast for 50 days. A therapeutic fast. He did water only. And he overcame a lot of his um, ailments. And uh, you, can't just start, you can't just start eating whatever you want right away after you've been fasting. Um, and you start with like really juicy, mostly water based, you know, melon and things like that. And the man, that man took a bite of watermelon and he started crying 
I've never, and it was because he was so thankful and it tasted so good. Watermelon, it's like one of the simplest things you could eat. Water and fiber, you know what I mean? But he put it in his mouth, he just started crying. It was so touching. And we, you know, we cry if McDonald's is closed or something. Well, maybe not you. Maybe, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, some gourmet place or something. But anyway. But again, it's not that we, of course we love food. I mean, we, we enjoy, we even take advantage of days like meat fair to have a little more meat if you eat meat. Um, and then cheese fair for, you know, like we're going to have ice cream. We're going to bring in ice, ice cream next week because it's the last day we have dairy. We're trying to get rid of it and we're going to bring some cause, just because we enjoy um, celebrating with one another as well. Um, so, continuing on. All, of the, all that we do is done ultimately for the sake of love. We must deny ourselves for the sake of the love of God and of our fellow man. And it's not because we, we, we have anything to prove to God. Um, like, we're trying to prove to God that know, again, by jumping through certain hoops, um, that, that, that we are worthy of his love now. Actually, it's the opposite. God loves us endlessly, but there are a lot of things that we, we put in the way that block the, the love receptors, you could say, you know, of God's love, our personal passions and preferences. So needless to say, this kind of love is not, oh, excuse me, um, we must deny ourselves for the sake of the love of God and of our fellow man. Needless to say, this kind of love is not an emotion or a feeling, but the dynamic gift of our life to one another. To another. Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This is the very love that God has shown toward us. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Sounds familiar, huh? I quoted it this morning. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. It's very popular in our day to talk about, quote, love. However, the world's idea of love is that of self-satisfaction not self-sacrifice. It's the idea that it makes me feel good and I'm not hurting anyone. You know, that's kind of our criterion. It's giving each other mutual pleasure in some way. And we call it love. Often I love you means I, I love me and want you. And this is not love, but it's the devil's parody of love. Those who preach an ethical system based on a love that knows no self-denial or sacrifice are preaching the doctrine of Antichrist. Do not be misled by these wolves in sheep's clothing. Love that does not demand the total gift of oneself is not love at all. St. James makes this point especially clear. He says, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, Notwithstanding, you give, you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? It means if you can, help, actually help someone. As a practical expression of love. Thus, the way of Christ is the way of the cross. 
There's no other way to the resurrection and to eternal life but through the sacrifice of suffering love. Of course, our own suffering and self-sacrifice would be pointless were it not for the suffering of Christ. It's his life that gives meaning to our life. It is his sacrifice on the cross which makes our life of self-denial worthwhile. No amount of human suffering could possibly heal the great wounds caused by sin. Only the suffering and death of God himself could do that. Ultimately, we are able to follow the commandments of Christ only because he's first lived human life the way it was meant to be lived. Will you guys read through? Um, let's see what time it is. 37. You, would, would some of you read the, uh, the quotes? Will someone take the first one by St. Nicholas? Do you want to do it, Sienna? Okay. It is in our power to persevere in that love, for it is not enough to love and experience its passion, but it is necessary to, uh, as well to persevere in it and to add fuel to the fire so that it may persist. For this is to abide in love, and all blessedness consists in this. To abide in love is to abide in God, and from him who abides in him, to possess him. For it says, he who abideth in love abideth in God, and abideth in him. This happens when we have love firmly fixed in, in the will, and arrive at that through the commandments that keep the laws of him whom we love. It is by actions that the soul is disposed towards one habit or another, so that men may partake of goodness or wickedness. Just as in the case of crafts, we acquire skills and learn them by becoming accustomed to the exercise. God's laws, which apply to human activities and determine and order them towards him alone, apart from the appropriate habit to those who act rightly, which is to will that which pleases the lawgiver and the subject all to our will, to him alone. Sorry. To subject all our will. Yeah. To to him alone and to keep, and to will nothing apart from him. This alone is to know how to love properly. And for this reason, the Savior says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. He keeps going. Then if you... Then, sorry, if then to imitate and to live according to him is to live in Christ. This is, this life is the effect of the will when it obeys God's purpose. Just as Christ subjected his human will to, to his divine will in order that he might leave us an example of the right life. So he did not refuse death on behalf of the world when it was necessary to die. But before the time came, he prayed that it might not happen, showing that he did not please himself by the teachings which he suffered. But as Paul says, he became obedient and went to the cross, not as though he had one will or one compounded compounded out of two, but rather the agreement of two wills. Yeah. And the point is, like, first of all... uh, Love seeks to do the will of the other, is what, is what he's saying. Christ exemplifies that, um, seeking not to do his own will, but the will of the other. And then he says, even, even in his struggle, when he, when he became man, as God, he did not want to become subject to death, and he asked 
that, that, that the Father would even let this cup pass, the cup of his suffering. But he said, but if it be thy will. And he subjected himself to the greater the, the will of God, which is the triumph of love. He demonstrated that in himself. Um, so love oftentimes means not doing what you would like to do, but doing what you would prefer not to do willingly. Does that make sense? Willingly doing that which you would prefer not to do. Or to use the language of St. Basil the Great, um, make voluntary that which is involuntary. I don't want to do it, but I know I should, therefore I will. And that actually means now I do want to. And when you, when you unlock this ability to totally invert the tyranny of selfishness and self-will, then the ego starts to wither away. And I don't want to sound too dramatic, but wings start to sprout. Because it's like you start to understand what the Father is called dispassion. Not going around being completely provoked by every wrong and every potential offense. Because when you realize that all I have is God and I, no one can take that away, then no one can offend me. And if someone says something poor about God, it's not wrong because, I mean, it's not right. It's wrong because, because God has the ultimate authority. He could tell you what you're really like, but you can't tell him what he's really like. God cannot be mocked, truly. So the subjection of one's will and becoming um, dispassionate and the authenticity of Christ's love is demonstrated in that he united the human will and the divine will. You, may, you guys may remember there was an ancient heresy called the monothelite heresy that said only Christ, Christ only had one will, a divine will. But this, this kind of love could not have taken place if he didn't also have a human will because he would not have subjected the human will to the divine one willingly, which is an example to us for how we're supposed to live. I'm sorry, it sounds awesome but also kind of philosophical sometimes. Okay, would someone read the next quote? The fear of hell? Uh, I'll Carl, read, yeah. I'll, I'll read that. Okay. Like a pastor. The fear of hell trains beginners to flee from evil. The desire for the reward of good things gives to the advanced the eagerness for the practice of virtues. But the mystery of love removes the mind from all created things causing it to be blind to all that is less than God. Only those who have become blind to all that is less than God does the Lord instruct by showing them more divine things. Mm -hmm. It's a good teaching. We won't, talk, we won't try to touch on that last part, because um, that is a deep teaching. But it, it echoes a teaching by St. Dorotheus of Gaza that I really love. And he says there are... There are, three, there are three approaches you can take in seeking to do the will of God. Um, 
Why do the will of God one to get out of hell? I probably shared this with you guys. Does it sound familiar? To get out of hell, that's the lowest form. You know, do, do what you need to do in order to escape something even worse. So, the next one is to get into heaven. So the first is follow the commandments of God to get out of hell. Second, a little bit better, but not much better, is to get into heaven, which is another way of saying not going to hell. <laughs> and then the highest one is because you love him, because you love God. And if you love God, then you trust, you trust him. And that's why in, in the teaching of the church and in the experience of like I happen to have um, his icon right here that was given to me as a gift today. He, he famously said, obedience is life. Because he understood that the virtue of obedience is, is the fruit of love. To seek to do the will of another and to serve the other. Father Zacharias was talking about the monastic life and how in the community of the monastery, their goal is to constantly seek to do the will of one another. As, as a kind of expression of their overall desire together to do the will of God. But it begins by seeking to do the will of one another. And he says, there's almost like this little sweet competition, like who can serve the other person a little bit more? You know? in a sweet way, in an innocent way. And uh, that's a good example to us, especially those of us who are married or who are in families, to ask someone else, you know, what would you like me to do? And then just absolutely do it, totally willingly. It reminds me of a story that, uh, that I heard about a failing marriage where the couple were they just could not communicate anymore everything resulted in an argument blaming an argument so the only way to tolerate living in a household where there's constant tension is to do what the psychologists call stonewalling you just throw up a wall barely acknowledge the other person because if, if you don't acknowledge one another then you're not plucking the string because it makes all the noise and he didn't the husband didn't he thought that there there was no solution and then he decided he came up with this idea I think it was given to him by God <laughs> to ask his wife one day uh, what would you like for me to do today? What can I do? Is there anything I can do for you today? And that became his rule of life. More important than anything else in his life. I have to do this because it was giving her priority over everything else. My wife, is, if she listens to my recording, she'd be like, yeah, you need to do that, Father. Um... But every day, he would ask her, what would you like me to do today? 
And that became his version of obedience as life. And it ended up saving their marriage because she saw that he was willing to listen to her and not just acknowledge that it's a good idea and then forget about it for six months, but to realize that for me to ask you what you care about and then for me to change my life in order to communicate care to you is an expression of love. But something had to change. He had to change. And they ended up, they both ended up changing. Um, and it saved their marriage. So, again, that's just another example of the kind of love that we're talking about. Okay? Um, I think we'll end there, and then when we, when we come together next week, we'll go into the, the Saving Humility um, special study. It's pretty short, but... I think we've covered enough um, today. So let's end with a little prayer together. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. O Christ, our God, who at all times and in every hour in heaven and on earth art worshipped and glorified, Lord, long-suffering, merciful, and compassionate, who lovest the just and showest mercy upon the sinner, who callest all the salvation through the promise of blessings to come. O Lord, in this hour, receive our supplications and direct our lives according to thy commandments. Sanctify our souls, hallow our bodies, correct our thoughts, cleanse our minds, and deliver us from all tribulation, evil, and distress. Encompass us with thy holy angels that guided and guarded by them, we may attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of thine unapproachable glory, for thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. Okay. God bless you all. <laughs> Go in peace. Thank you. You guys are the true ascetics. I always tell people because you guys stay so late. You come some of you made it for Orthros. You were here for the whole service. Divine liturgy. Part of coffee hour. And uh, and now almost an hour and a half class. So thank you. God bless you and keep you.